Hello and welcome to the Haaretz Podcast. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. Israel is facing some painful realities. The complete victory over Hamas in Gaza promised by Israeli leaders in the days following October 7th is proving to be impossible to accomplish in the short term and possibly in the long term as well. As that fact sinks in, political pressure is increasing on the Netanyahu government to go to the negotiating table for a deal that would free many, if not all, of its citizens being held hostage in Gaza, but at a painful price. Meanwhile, exchanges of fire continue on the northern border with Lebanon, and the possibility of full-scale war with Hezbollah is still on the table. This is keeping thousands of residents of northern communities out of their homes and worrying the Biden White House. Here to discuss all of these developments and more is Chuck Freilich, a senior researcher at the Institute for National Security Studies. He served for over 20 years in Israel's national security establishment, including a stint as deputy national security advisor. He is also the author of three books on Israel's national security policy. Former Israeli Deputy National Security Advisor Chuck Freilich, welcome to the Haaretz Podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. There's so much to discuss this week in what feels to me like the muddiest and most confusing part of the war so far. Most of the public debate in Israel at the moment is centering around whether Israel needs to keep its head down, continue to relentlessly root out Hamas military infrastructure throughout the Gaza Strip, now in the southern part of the Gaza Strip, and pursue its declared goal of ridding Gaza of Hamas, creating a security situation in which Israelis can presumably return to their homes on the Gaza border. At the same time, we have emotional pleas from the families of the more than 100 hostages still being held in Gaza to seriously consider extreme demands for an extended cease of hostilities for a hostage deal. They're saying there will always be time to wage this war, but the clock is ticking on the lives of their loved ones. The assertion of the government led by Benjamin Netanyahu that we can have both, we can keep fighting full force and get our hostages back at the same time is losing a lot of credibility. Even a member of his own war cabinet, Gadi Eisenkot, has said that whoever speaks of the absolute defeat of Hamas in Gaza and having no will or capability to hurt Israel is not speaking the truth and we should not tell tall tales. It seems like we've got a big dilemma here and we've got a big problem of expectations management when it comes to the Israeli public? Well, I agree fully that this is an extreme, uh, extremely difficult dilemma for Israel. We're in a situation which is not entirely surprising given the colossal failure of October 7th. And maybe the government made a mistake in the hot atmosphere in the days after the war. Uh, every Everybody, uh, decision makers, civilians, citizens, we were all devastated by what happened. And maybe they overstated the goals by stating that we were going to destroy Hamas as a military organization and topple it uh, from being the governing body in Gaza. Because we haven't achieved either of those goals, we're still far away from them. Had they set goals of, let's say, uh, destroying Hamas as a coherent military force, not destroying it completely, and weakening it as the governing body in Gaza, then we could say actually that the operation has been very successful. But that wasn't what was done, partly just a mistake in decision-making and partly 
may be an understandable human error, although we expect more of our leaders. But we're now in this position where it looks like we haven't won the war, made far from it, and we have to make these kinds of difficult decisions. I must say I'm quite torn by this whole thing because on the one hand, we all want to bring the, the hostages back. I mean, there's no doubt about that, Israel's commitment to its citizens, I think is even far stronger than that of other countries. Uh, this is something that we take very seriously, part of the so-called fundamental social uh, contract in Israel. I don't accept the approach that says at all costs. That's not true. There are national objectives which can at times um, conflict with, can be even more important than lives of uh, of people. At the same time, it doesn't look like we're going to achieve those goals. And so I do believe that those who say that we have to bite very hard and make very painful concessions, and as a matter of fact, I don't think there's anyone in the government at this point who isn't willing to make painful concessions. The question is just how far. There's also a question where some people say, all right, we'll, we'll, again, we'll bite the bullet, and one of them is going to be a prolonged ceasefire, maybe a few months. Uh, it's hard to see how we renew the fighting at the end of those three months. Uh, on the other hand, Hamas will, uh, I have no doubt, give us a good justification for doing so sooner or later. Uh, we're mobilized today. The, the IDF is fighting. So what I'm basically saying is that this is, as you indicated, I mean, this is one of those excruciating decisions that uh, have to be made. I don't think there's any one clear answer. Uh, very painful concessions, yes, it'll mean thousands of Hamas uh, terrorists being released, and we know that a lot of them will go back and conduct terrorist ops in the future. Uh, it will mean probably, in effect, a... Uh, end to the war, even without Israel achieving its military objectives, which means a Hamas victory. And that's the really difficult pr problem here because it's a precedent for the future. It's another victory of a, an Iran-backed uh, asymmetric player. We haven't done well in any of the rounds with Hamas or Hezbollah. Uh, this is the price one pays for the decision-making failures that led to October 7th. Uh, in the end, I guess I come down on the side with those who say uh, we have to do it. But this is, it, it of course, it will depend on the final deal, the details. It's ugly. Maybe things are happening behind the scenes, but in front of the scenes, in front of the cameras, it doesn't look like our prime minister is leaning this way. He even said uh, yesterday that if we stop hostilities to get the hostages back, our fallen soldiers would have died in vain, which looks like a piece of emotional manipulation. We're pitting the families of the hostages against the families of the fallen soldiers. It appears that he's digging in on the opposite side and the hostage families are complaining, well, if you've made a decision that continuing the fighting is more important than getting the hostages back, then just say so. But it seems like either decisions are not being made or a decision has been made against a hostage deal that is simply not being stated. Well, I think uh, it's true that he has probably come down on the other side. And partly it may be for the kind of strategic considerations I mentioned before. And I think, uh, and here's the really unfortunate or additionally unfortunate part of the picture is that I think there's little doubt at this point that the prime minister's personal political and legal considerations uh, 
are affecting his decision making, not just in this regard, but in other areas uh, and the way he's conducting the war at this point. He knows that if he accepts these concessions at this point, he will probably lose the elections. Uh, his base won't accept it. And whether one thinks that we should or should not accept the deal, those kinds of considerations, of course, are totally unacceptable. I think the, the hostage families understand that. On the other hand, their demand for a clear answer is again understandable. And who would want to be in their position? But at the same time, they want a clear answer where there is none and where a clear answer then also constrains Israel's negotiating position. So I don't think uh, a clear answer is necessarily what is needed at this point. You wrote in Haaretz in November that the two-state solution was on terminal life support long before Hamas's attack, the Palestinian rejection of peace proposals, the second intifada, the terrorism uh, between 2000 and 2004, the decimation of Israel's peace camp, the rise of the right, and then that October 7th killed the two-state solution entirely, or as you kind of put it dramatically, Hamas massacred the Palestinian dream of an independent state. And yet, what do we have being batted around between the Biden White House and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his government this week? An argument over whether or not Israel's closed the door on a two-state solution. Presumably, this is because of Biden's wider policy in the region to try to get some sort of Saudi-Israel deal for recognition going on, even though the war makes it seem relatively impossible, but he's trying to pull off some sort of foreign policy win. How do we deal with this where this is so important in the U.S. to the Democratic Party as a policy? In Israel, the two-state solution just seems like an unrealistic pipe dream, and we're just trying to get through this war. It feels like Israelis are in Venus and the administration is on Mars. How does Israel manage this and how do we face this? Well, first of all, I must say I sometimes ask myself what the administration is smoking and it must be some really good stuff because I don't understand where the assessments are, not just that we need a two-state solution, which is, of course, a legitimate position, but that it is a viable option at this point. Um, I must say pretty much everything I know says that it isn't anymore. And I say that with great pain because I've been a lifelong supporter of the two-state solution. It's true that catastrophes or crises sometimes breed positive outcomes. We had it with the Yom Kippur War, which then led to the peace process and peace agreement with Egypt. But this is a totally different situation. Uh, none of the components of an agreement, of a potential agreement down the line, uh, appeared to be there. So you have to ask yourself, uh, does the administration really think this is a possible uh, move on its part? Is it just playing to its own base? Well, it's certainly doing that. And the truth is that this conflict, especially if it continues, and if it, certainly if it expands to Lebanon, this could actually cause the president uh, to lose the elections in November. Not that it's such a huge, heavy issue for, the, for most of the American electorate, but it is for small parts of it, activist parts of it. It could be a determining factor in some critical states, such as Michigan, where there's a large uh, Muslim minority. And it could affect uh, the outcome in some other important states, especially among young people. And I believe that the state of Israel has a strategic interest in seeing the re-election of Mr. Biden 
because he has been a remarkable friend to us. Again, we can agree or disagree about a two-state solution, but the degree of uh, strategic coordination and cooperation since October 7th has been remarkable. I don't think we could have asked any more of any American president. It was on the military level. It was on the uh, diplomatic level. The president deployed a major force here in the region to deter Hezbollah and Iran. Um, it's truly been an outstanding response. So first of all, we have to try and help them. And whether Mr. Netanyahu wishes to go ahead or not with a two-state solution, he at least should be forthcoming in some way, find some diplomatic language that he can accept that'll be ambiguous enough not to turn his base uh, overly against him, bring down his coalition. I think our relationship with the United States is an existential one. Uh, and it's, I think, far more critical than the way we deal with Iran or with the Palestinian issues or Hezbollah or whatever, because we need the U.S. for all of them. It turns out this is not what we thought. It turns out we even need the U.S. for what we thought was a limited threat, Hamas. Uh, so we might need it with Hezbollah. We, we used to think that we might need the U.S. only for something like the uh, a nuclear Iran. Well, it turns out we're even far more dependent on the U.S. than we ever knew. So I think this is being mismanaged by Israel. I think Mr. Netanyahu must change his response. Uh, he's also creating the, the sense in the U.S., I think uh, correctly, that he's actually running against Biden. And that's just remarkable and unacceptable. Do you think that presumably if, again, Netanyahu keeps his base in the forefront and is not able to utter the words or is not able to give Biden some sort of cover or some sort of uh, ability to uh, to stand by his current policy and they make the same sort of analysis in these critical swing states in 2024 that you're making, that this could actually shift U.S. policy towards Israel and shift its attitude towards the war? I think Biden's degree of commitment to Israel is his, just his personal commitment, a lifelong commitment, is such that he will avoid a major crisis in relations. But it's becoming more and more of an issue, uh, whether he wants to or not. His number one objective has to be to get reelected. And so I think we've already seen growing criticism coming out of the administration in recent weeks, especially since Secretary Blinken's uh, visit and Israel is blamed for not responding uh, to him as the administration expected, especially in regard to normalization with Saudi Arabia. And I think we'll see more and more open talk and pressure to go forward on the, the two-state uh, solution. I don't think we'll see a crisis as long as Biden is in uh, office. And some people are looking forward uh, to Mr. Trump possibly uh, re-entering office. I think they should take into account that a second-term Trump may be very different from the first-term Trump. Yeah, a year ago, it would have been a no-brainer for the vast majority of the Israeli public, you know, according to what the polls were. Um, of course, they want Donald Trump back in office. Of course, he'll be better for Israel than Biden. And it's not so clear these days. I'm curious what you think about the Biden-Trump uh, 
potential uh, comparison in terms of how Trump would have or if he's elected will manage something like this conflict and also Trump's only real opponent now Nikki Haley she has a foreign policy record too who do you think would be better for Israel among those three well Haley certainly has a very very good very very strong record on Israel I mean, she really has said all the right things, and she she comes from it from a, a hard line position, but I think a realistic one and a potentially effective one. Trump, I think, uh, well, he he says openly that he's angry at Netanyahu for not being fully supportive of him when he uh, lost the elections and wanted Netanyahu to say other things. Again, I think Biden has been a truly remarkable friend. Personally, I think he's been an effective president, both domestically and in international affairs generally. But I think for Israel, we couldn't have asked for more. And since I, despite the fact that I do think that the two-state solution is at best uh, in its last gasps, uh, I'd very much like to see Biden try. And that's something that he might do really do in a second term. Uh, I think it's hard to imagine that he'll do it in the coming months, especially given uh, Netanyahu's response and the fact that I don't think there is any interlocutor at this point on the Palestinian side. We need uh, change in the governments, both in Israel and on the Palestinian side, before we can really make any progress. So it, that will, I don't think there'll be a major push before November. And we can't picture what Donald Trump would do in a second term because we can never picture what Donald Trump's going to do. Never. <laughs> From minute to minute. I have to say, talking about U.S. politics feels like downright fun compared to uh, what we mostly need to talk about right now in Israel, uh, which is the war. Um, so unfortunately, we'll go back to that. Um, the situation we've discussed in the South, in Gaza, is difficult, distressing, painful. But at least it is somewhat straightforward. And in the North, we aren't sure what's going on. Is there already a war with Hezbollah? Will there be a war with Hezbollah? You've called a full-out war with Hezbollah inevitable in a recent piece you wrote in Haaretz, and you said there are weighty strategic reasons for believing that it is Israel that should take the initiative in this case and that it should do so soon. Um, can you talk to me about those weighty strategic reasons that you uh, considered in that piece? Sure. Uh, first of all, I didn't quite say that it's inevitable. I said that there are people in Israel who believe that it will happen in any event. And so maybe now is uh, a good time to do it. And the reasons for that are, well, there's a number. First of all, we're fully mobilized. We're on alert. We're ready. Um, the reserves especially, but the, the IDF as a whole, have gotten a lot of very important uh, experience in this type of warfare. Uh, what will happen in the north, if it does, will be in some ways similar to the battle in uh, in Gaza. It's different uh, because Hezbollah is actually a much greater threat, but the overall nature of the fighting is similar. But we're ready now. The U.S. is deployed in the region. It still has a carrier force in the Red Sea to deter Iran from getting involved. And if you believe that uh, it's going to happen eventually, well, maybe this is a better time. And uh, we're tired of limited rounds that produce no solution, just a little bit of time until the next round. And there's also the feeling in Israel that 
all of the people who were evacuated from the north, close to 80,000 people, can't return home unless Hezbollah is pushed back behind the Itani River, which has partly happened already. And we're in the midst of uh, a, an ongoing limited war. They've hit us, we've hit them back, we've hit them back harder, as a matter of fact, and we've taken advantage of the of this conflict to do things that we haven't done in recent years, which is to hit a whole bunch of Hezbollah uh, targets along the border and even somewhat deep into uh, Lebanese territory. And we have, to a significant degree, pushed them back to the Litani. Of course, if and when the fighting, or when the fighting ends, they can come back down uh, to the south very rapidly. And so only some sort of diplomatic resolution might actually uh, solve the problem or partially solve it. So as I was saying, lots of good reasons for maybe doing it, but there are also lots of good reasons for not doing so. And I tend to think that in the balance, it is still somewhat better for Israel, somewhat more prudent if we don't do it, if we don't escalate. Well, especially since the number one reason, I guess, at the top of the list of not doing it is how much the Biden White House doesn't want us to do it. And it seems like that's been motivating all of these visits by Blinken and the, and the close supervision of the conflict by the United States is that they, they fear this blowing up in the north. Right. Of course, the U.S. consideration is a primary one. But I would say there's another one here, which is of equal or almost equal, equal importance, maybe even greater importance. And that's the fact that we're going to be hit very, very hard in the next war. It's going to make the war in Gaza look like child's play in comparison. Because after the first day, the Israeli home front beyond the immediate Gaza area has not been very involved. And if Hamas had something like 30,000 rockets when this war began, Hezbollah is thought to have something like 150,000. And they also have precision missiles, which will be able to hit our national infrastructure, for example, power stations, water installations, uh, communications nodes. They'll be able to disrupt IDF operations, whether it's mobilization uh, forces, whether it's um, hitting Israel's most critical strategic capabilities, such as air bases. And we just had an example a couple of weeks ago when they hit a, uh, an Air Force early warning center or air command center in the north, but they'll be able to hit lots of targets like that. They'll be able to disrupt the command and control systems. I mean, this is going to be a very ugly war for us. To overstate the case, there'll hardly be a home in Israel that is not hit by this. And, well, putting it off has its advantages. On the other hand, the more you put it off, the stronger they grow. And maybe the more they deploy the Radwan, their special forces along the border. So again, it's one of those situations. It's just like, what do we do with Hamas at this point? Um, there's no clear answer. My conclusion was, given the, the American position, we probably shouldn't do it now. But we may also not have uh, such an opportunity. You're a longtime Iran watcher. Uh, we were just uh, discussing uh, before we started recording the podcast that all of your previous appearances on the podcast were debating whether or not we should do a nuclear deal with Iran, which feels 
very, very long time ago. They are a, if not the major player behind the scenes in this conflict. In the headlines, as we record, is two Navy SEALs being killed. The uh, United States Defense Department has just announced who are boarding a boat thought to be carrying advanced Iranian weapons in the Arabian Sea near the coast of Somalia, presumably to resupply the Houthi forces in Yemen. Do you see Iran continuing to stay in the shadows behind its proxies? Any possibility of direct involvement by Iran? Well, I think the Iranian strategy of indirect uh, involvement, of working through proxies, has proven to be remarkably successful from their point of view. If you look at it, we haven't yet won a single round against Hezbollah and Hamas. Some we've done better than in others. There isn't a single one of the rounds starting in the, really in the 80s and especially since the 90s, that we ended with a sense of satisfaction. Maybe it wasn't a decisive victory, but we did well. They all ended just the opposite with this feeling of not so good. And 2006 ended with a sense in Israel of, that it was very, very bad. In retrospect, I think we did better than we thought at the time. But the sense was that it was very bad. And the same with most of the rounds with Hamas since then. Iran is a very, very sophisticated adversary for Israel. It is, I think, the first adversary we've ever had that is too big, too far, and too powerful for us to defeat. We can defend ourselves successfully, but how do you defeat a country as big as Iran? And one which works through these proxy actors using asymmetric warfare very, very effectively against us. They also did it against helping uh, pro-Iranian uh, proxies in Iraq. They helped it against the U.S. I think on the one hand, we have to hope very, very much that Iran does not get involved. And at the same time, they can't keep enjoying this impunity. I mean, they hit us through their, through their proxies. Well, the truth is we have been hitting them back directly sometimes, most of it covert operations. And at some point, we may have to go from covert to overt attacks against them. But that, of course, means us a danger of a significant escalation. So, Chuck, I don't want to congratulate you too much on being a successful prophet of doom, but I was looking <laughs> over some of the past things you'd written for us recently at Haaretz, and I saw that in April you wrote, quote, we face a possible perfect storm, one which Israel's intelligence agencies have been warning about for months of a multi-front war. One need not be unusually creative to imagine the glee with which Iran, Hezbollah, and Hamas must be viewing the disarray and self-inflicted processes of destruction underway in Israel. Why would they not take advantage of it? I read that and I thought, well, if the writing was on the wall, if the intelligence services were warning about it, why were we taken so off guard on October 7th? Have you thought about that? Yes, endlessly. Uh, as someone who was in the defense establishment for decades. Um, I guess I even felt, even, and I've been out for many, many years, but still, uh, you know, once you're part of the, the establishment, I guess you always feel that you're part of it. And certainly the sense of responsibility. How did we get, how did we screw up so badly? Okay, Where There are a lot of smart people in the defense establishment, especially in the intelligence uh, services, I mean, they are really usually as good as it gets. So what, how did it get so wrong this time? And I think there are a few factors. I think like with every great strategic surprise, it's a failure of imagination. Whoever thought that 
Egypt and Syria could win a war against us. There was no chance of that. So they won't attack. Well, that wasn't quite their strategy in 73. Whoever thought that uh, Japan could defeat the United States, that was part of the, there, there was no prospect of that. So that was part of the failure in Pearl Harbor. And whoever thought that somebody would fly commercial jet liners into a skyscraper, that was 9-11. So there's these cases where you don't believe something can happen, and so you don't look for it. And intelligence agencies, individuals, we all have to operate with certain assumptions about life. In Israel, it's gotten the pejorative term of a conception. But yes, we all have to operate with conceptions. And in this case, the conception simply was wrong. And since they were working from within this conception, they just didn't see what happened. That's one thing. A second thing was that Hamas, to their credit, pulled off a really remarkable strategic deception and a number of tactical deceptions. Uh, to give you an example, the last couple of years, they managed to convince us that they were focusing primarily on domestic governance and economic growth. Not that anybody thought that Hamas had given up its long-term objective of Israel's destruction, but at least for a few years, they would get ahead in a different way. That was the strategic deception. Then tactically, if you look back the week before the war broke out, they had renewed the mass and violent demonstrations along the Gaza border. Stopped about a year, year and a half ago. And so the IDF was focused on dealing with these demonstrations and the growing terrorism in the West Bank in recent months. And again, didn't see what was happening. And finally, I would add to the major causes of the war, the so-called judicial overhaul. I've always called it the judicial wrecking ball. <laughs> and here you saw both the government was focused entirely on the overhaul and on staying in power, because there was already a lot of talk even before the war that this government was heading uh, to a collapse. And the IDF was focused on the intelligence services. They were all focused for the last three quarters of a year on just keeping it together. There was, I mean, this is remarkable. I, I, I can't even believe that I'm saying this out loud. I wrote this. There was deep fear that the IDF, the entire intelligence establishment was going, defense establishment, was coming apart at the seams. Israeli society was torn apart. And so they also, they weren't really focusing on what they're supposed to do, which is look at Hamas and Hezbollah and Iran. They were just trying to keep, uh, keep things together. I also looked back on what you wrote on October 8th, and you said you thought that the only way that this conflict could not actually be a big debacle, like it's sort of playing out to be, would be if we could hasten the downfall of the criminally negligent and fundamentally illegitimate government in Israel. And you noted that it had taken three and a half years before the Golda Meir government was thrown out of office after Yom Kippur. This time, you said, it will probably happen far more quickly. Well, it doesn't seem to be happening so quickly so far, at least not yet. We have this unity war cabinet with uh, Benny Gantz in it. Um, none of the coalition partners um, that Netanyahu has that keeps his majority in the Knesset seem to be leaving anytime soon. And the world looks at us, I mean, at least people I know abroad do, and say Israelis clearly have no faith that Netanyahu is not waging this war with his political considerations and his personal considerations in the front of mind. He's not doing what's best for the country. And yet, 
you know, he's not going anywhere. He's not moving. People aren't doing anything to get rid of them. When people overseas ask you that question, what's your answer? Well, first of all, the war is still underway. Uh, I at least did not expect that it would take anywhere near this long. And unfortunately, it's still going to be ongoing for a while. So there was a consensus in Israel to put off the difficult political questions. And yeah, in wartime, it's hard to change leaders. But things are beginning to quiet down. The level of intensity of combat in Gaza is much lower than it was. And I think the chances of a war with Hezbollah are at least somewhat lower than they were until now. And we've already seen in recent weeks uh, the beginnings of a of renewed public pressure of people coming out on Saturday nights for the demonstrations against the government. Uh, I participate in them, and I can say that this week was at least a couple of times bigger than the one uh, that I had attended a couple weeks before that. So I think the momentum is slowly building. Uh, and in another couple of weeks, I think it will really start uh, becoming big. The, the question is how in the end uh, Netanyahu will be forced out of office. I don't think it's going to happen from the Knesset. I don't think enough people, if any, will bolt the coalition to bring him down in the first stage. And what's going to have to happen is truly massive public pressure and outpouring which will make the dramatic uh, demonstrations of the judicial overhaul pale in comparison again. If we had a half a million people on some weeks at the time, I think we'll get a million people this time. And it won't be just the center or center left. It'll be a lot of people on the right who may then vote for a right-wing candidate, but have had enough of Netanyahu. I, I've always been very hesitant to make any predictions about Israeli politics because they usually prove wrong. But in this case, I really do think that we're heading in the coming months to the end of the Netanyahu era. So if a two-state solution isn't possible in your view, what is? I think in the final analysis, we have no choice but to separate from the Palestinians. Now, a two-state solution is at best not going to happen for many, many years, maybe for decades. What we can do, and which may ultimately lead to that, is what, what's called civil disengagement from the West Bank. In other words, we will define what part of the West Bank we intend to keep, even in a final peace agreement. And the debate in Israel about that ranges from 4 to 10% of the territory. 10% is about where the current fence line is. That's what we intend to keep. And in the rest of the West Bank, we begin the process of dismantling the settlements and bringing the settlers back home. But the IDF remains deployed throughout the West Bank for the duration, for as long as it takes, and if necessary, uh, decades, for security purposes. And in this area that we've withdrawn from civilly, there can be a strengthened Palestinian authority, which will be closer to the kind of independent status the Palestinians will want, but not on a military level. Beyond that, I don't think the Israeli public will go. We have been so traumatized by the events of October 7th that I don't think the public will accept a two-state solution. And you have to look, what's Israel's uh, ultimate goal in any peace agreement? It's safety, it's security. I don't think anybody today believes that security arrangements, effective security arrangements can be 
instituted. And if that's the case, we really can't achieve the two-state solution. And that's why we have to maintain military control over the West Bank uh, for the long term. And same, uh, same in Gaza. In Gaza, we have to, uh, despite what the current government is saying, in Gaza, we have to bring the PA back, a, maybe a revitalized PA, but there's no other realistic alternative. And together, West Bank and Gaza, we'll have to maintain the security control, but give the Palestinians what will be near independence, except uh, on the uh, security level. That's where I think we can go. And can we call it a state? Well, we can call it near a state. Uh, I, look, I think the Palestinians have missed their historic opportunity or, in, or in, at least in very, very severe danger of losing their historic opportunity to ever have a fully independent state. And at least for the foreseeable future, it is too dangerous to Israel's uh, security. And here I have to disagree with the Biden administration, which is presenting a two-state solution. An independent Palestinian state, they keep saying, is actually critical to Israel's future. Well, maybe it, in the long term, I agree with them, uh, not on a security level. It's critical to Israel's future for uh, demographic reasons, for democratic reasons. On a security level, after October 7th, it's really, really hard to see how we can get there. Chuck Freilich, former Deputy National Security Advisor for Israel, thanks so much for coming on and answering the questions. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. And that wraps things up for the Haaretz podcast. Thanks to my guest, Chuck Freilich, and to my producer and editor, Nara Malkin. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer, and until next week, shalom from Tel Aviv.